Greetings, and welcome to the 80 Level Roundtable Podcast. Invites video game industry leaders to talk about the world of game development. No topic is off limits as long as it relates to video game development. New episodes are in the works, so remember to follow us or subscribe and share with someone you know will also enjoy the podcast. So can you do a little intro? Tell us a little about about yourself and your studio. Yeah, um, my name is Andrew Orloff. I am one of the founders of Zoic Studios, uh, founded in Culver City in 2002 came to Zoic with a group of like-minded artists who wanted to form a company for artists that really brought creativity, especially to the broadcast space in visual effects, which was something that was uh, very new at the time. And I've been working in visual effects uh, since I graduated from UCLA Film School in 1993, uh, learning on my own. There wasn't a lot of structure uh, for visual effects education at that time. In fact, there was none. Uh, learning my way through on the old SGI machines and um, working on on the box as an artist through many different uh, film and television projects until now where I'm currently the president and uh, executive creative director for the Vancouver office for Zoic Studios and also heading up the real-time division, which is a new a part of Zoic that is uh, 100% focused on using Unreal Engine and uh, as a tool to generate visual effects. Andrew, so before we kind of jump into the usage of Unreal Engine 4 and uh, like the real-time filmmaking, sure. um, what does Zoic specialize in? So if you go on your website and you check out the portfolio of titles, you will see a bunch of different stuff. There is a lot of TV shows. There is a lot of uh, films. There is, uh, personally, I'm super excited because you worked on the Midnight Mass, which is mm-hmm. like my latest uh, favorite show. It's, it's an amazing show. If you haven't seen it, you can go watch it. And uh, can you tell us a little bit of where do you specialize and how did this kind of influence the decisions you made, you know, going into real time and so on? Because right. you see right now, you know, the, the TV shows, and I don't think a lot of people appreciate it, are getting to the kind of a quality that you would expect from a very big budget feature film like 10 yeah. years ago or something. Right. right? Uh-huh. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Um, we made a conscious decision when we started the company that, which was not really fashionable at the time, because at the time, a lot of visual effects companies were popping up in in the in the in what was a gigantic boom, mostly fueled by the availability of cheaper and more powerful PC based, Windows based um, hardware and uh, software. Previous to that, um, the facilities had been had to make a much larger investment into these very expensive SGI-based workstations to get the work done. And, you know, there was very few of us who knew how to work them, and there was a lot of um, investment, capital investment, that were needed to studios to actually have the machines. There were hundreds of thousands of dollars in a lot of cases. As Zoic started, we're seeing a a big expansion of visual effects in in kind of a smaller, more startup to medium-sized 
configuration of visual effects companies uh, based around PC hardware and building our own render farms and being able to have a lot more power. That's just kind of the context for where we were at. And what we found ourselves, and this continued for many years and still continues to some day, when you ask about specialization, where um, a lot of people ask me the same question. What is Zoic known for? Are you a shop that does water? Are you a shop that does characters? Are you a shop that does uh, set extensions? Um, And we have really never ascribed to that model of specialization for visual effects, which is one facility that has one core competency. Since we started in broadcast, we started with shows like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Angel, Firefly, going into Battlestar Galactica. What we found our niche is, is that we are a full service creative partner, a true studio. We work on a lot of projects either that we supervise and are the sole vendor on, or we take sequence work and work with other supervisors. We've been around for 19 years. I think we know pretty much everybody right now. And people come to us for not just a full package, because I don't want to give the impression that it's a jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none situation, but they come to us for when you need to hand off a creative piece that involves visual effects we will come to it with design. We will come to it with ideas. We'll come to it with, with shot making and, and, and sequence constructing ideas to kind of make a whole piece, uh, a kind of a film within a film is the way that we've always, you know, looked at it. So what that, what that brings us to is a bunch of jobs and the jobs that we bid all the time are jobs that I call that have that are what I've just kind of dubbed as tonally specific. And that really fits in with what's happening. You mentioned Midnight Mass, but if you look at, you know, just even the, the, the previews and the little, you know, chiclet posters like on Netflix or on Hulu, you know, every show is trying to form its visual identity. And they have a specific, it's not just, you know, the old TV where like, you know, if you look at Space 1999 and Ballastar Galactica, there's not a lot of tonal, you know, there's a different design, but it looks like a, it looks like a 70s or 80s TV show. Now that's not the case. Like they're using different lenses, they're using different color correction, and they're using, and that, 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 and visual effects carries a lot of weight there. On a show like Sweet Tooth, the tone of the show is really important to the to the narrative of the show. And visual effects is used to support the tone of the show. And another show like um, Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, very similar, but very different tone. So that's why you'll see on a website, spaceships and castles and vampires and aliens and all of the things. Because what we end up doing is we've always been passionate about is forming you know, holding on, even though we're at 400 employees right now, big as we've ever been. So, you know, can't really call it a small facility, but it's not as big as, you know, say ILM or, you know, one of the larger facilities that has three or four times as many um, employees or more. Um, we still keep that boutique mentality. We still keep core teams that are assigned directly to the shows with artists and supervisors and producers who have a passion for the material and really connect with the material on an artistic level. So that's where, you know, we do our own character design a lot of times. We do our own previs a lot of times. We do our own effects design a lot of times. Sometimes we're just executing like any other visual effects company has to do, but we tend to get jobs where we take on a lot of creative responsibility and make teams that are purpose fit and cast to 
to, to, to make that show and have a, because you know, what we want to do is we want to get a core team together and we want our artists and supervisors to what I call self note to understand the visual style of the show on such a uh, fundamental level that they're able to know what it takes to final a shot without being told by one of the creators of the show. They know it. And part of that is because they've been so involved in the creative process of it. So what we end up having is each show has its own team that's fixed and we have the ability to expand into other, you know, like uh, dynamics team is shared and animation team is shared, you know, but the core supervisor, producer, CG supervisor, uh, comp supervisor, core compositors and core CG laters are all attached to that show, usually for the run of the entire show, even over multiple Mm -hmm. seasons. So it's a bit of a, of a different approach and those little, like a common little boutiques, you know, like little, you know, like they're, 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 they're hooked into Zoic. We have a lot of pipeline to have help everybody communicate across our offices, but they're purpose built for that show. And so when somebody has something that like, I have an effect and I don't know what it needs to look like, or I need you to help me put these words either on the page into a vision. Those are the type of shots shows that we get. And that's why you're seeing a lot of what appears to be disparate types of effects and like not a lot of specialization, but our specialization is that creative partnership. Like that's what Thank people come so to us for. You don't, you don't come to us just to do a bunch of set extensions or, or monitor burdens or whatever. You come in where you're like, I have a cool alien. I don't know what it looks like. Can you help me? We'll be back after a quick break. Ever thought modern video games should be more interesting? At the Gaming Blender, we take randomized genres, mechanics, and make a new game every episode. I've added permadeath. We have a survival game of a hardcore simulation, which could be House Flipper, and with the permadeath of XCOM. Then that all has to be an action adventure. Yes. Ooh, dear. Yes. And sometimes it doesn't quite work. And you you have a construction off over the course of the of the narrative. A construction off. The way, the way we can do this is that we ditch your idea entirely. Entirely. Check out The Gaming Blender on all your favourite podcast platforms now. Thank you. Thank you for kind of explaining this. And your portfolio is amazing. You've made so many shows. And I think if people kind of look at them, they will find one of their favourite shows there because you kind of worked on like some of the best stuff that's been released into yeah we've had we've had some fun over the years i i agree <laughs> so my my question is the following you mentioned that the there was some kind of a big shift in the way that tv is produced and if you look at like Bell galactica and you look at something that is being done today the the difference is drastic there's it's incredible how much has things changed so from the technical standpoint or maybe from your production standpoint. So what were like the main things that changed and helped to kind of help, you know, bring the visuals? I think broadcast follows the same trajectory, if not, you know, a little bit on the tail of what happened in the, in the, in the film industry. And in some cases was able to move a lot faster. Um, But, you know, many of the shows that I grew up on and the movies that I grew up on are, mostly practical. I mean, I was really obsessed with computer graphics very early on, um, spent, you know, many hours, you know, um, 
building, you know, models of this Ravel models of the space shuttle and like plotting out each section of it on graph paper and then typing those graph points into a computer with a little program that would let me spin it around in 3D. And I was really very, um, you know, kind of obsessed, I guess, or just really uh, um, captivated by the original CG heavy movies of the 80s, like Tron and Last Starfighter. Um, I just felt that that was, you know, there was a design aesthetic there and the look of the CG was something that like really focused me in. And I was, you know, working on mostly school computers, public school kid working on school computers, Apple's California, being a public school kid in California had a lot of access to Apple's Apple two E was the, was it was the first computer that I, that I worked on and I was doing a lot of artwork on it at the time. There was just a lot of like, why would you do that? Like you draw on paper or you work on a computer. Like, why would you draw on a computer? Like, that's not something that people do. <laughs> and I was just like, I don't care. I just, I just love doing this and I'm fascinated by it, you know, for some mm. reason. So I've been doing this for a long time and was very like uh, voracious. And, and there was not a lot of, you put yourself back in that time. There's just not a, there's no YouTube. There's no DVD special editions. There's TV, VHS tapes, magazines, and records. Like that was the thing that that was the way that we consumed our media at that time. And, you know, so I was always scouring bookstores and used bookstores for, you know, Cinema Fantastique magazine, Fangoria magazine, Starlog magazine, going to comic book conventions and trying to forgot comic books in that in that media list there, because that, that's a big one as well. Um you know, and so that was just my journey. I was like obsessed with it, but that had no real access or 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 clear pathway. Like people coming up today know that they can go to Nomen or VFS or DigiPen to learn the skills that they need to become a modeler or an Unreal artist or any of that mm-hmm. stuff that none of that existed. So I knew that, you know, um, filmmaking was that was the pathway there. And even when I was at UCLA, there were no computers connected to the filmmaking process. Like even editing at that time was still flatbed. And I think that, you know, that experience for me gave me a lot of insight into film language. And there's like, you know, it's a hundred year old medium. And a lot of things we're doing in CG is replicating what what was done and making things look like they were actually shot to know the physicality of that is important. But to, to, to continue on my long answer to your short question, I think that as the computer, you know, like what really accelerated it and I was just coming into the business graduating the exact same year that Jurassic Park came out, that was really the thing that said, okay, you know, model making, stop motion, you know, um, you know, to a large degree, motion control photography and all the stuff that I've been obsessed with, which was really the access to like that stuff existed in a high castle. Like you needed Uh to try so hard to even see a motion control rig in action on a film set. Like there's so many, there's so much gatekeeping going on there. And I think what really happened is as the computers came in, more young people were able to get more access. And it started out slow with the SGI. And now, you know, we're just at this point now where um, anybody can get Blender and it works fantastically well, like thousands of times faster and thousands of times more sophisticated. Anybody can get Unreal Engine. 
Like you don't even need money. Like all you need is a gaming PC and you can do these incredible, fantastic things. And the people who are the, the VFX artists of my generation came into the industry at a point where that was rapidly expanding, like very rapidly expanding over the period of 10 years. And Zoic was formed in those 10 years. And we were able to really um, jump on that bandwagon and be able to access a lot of tools that previously had been in the CG world, like all the stuff in those films I mentioned, Tron, Last Starfighter, you know, those are all done by companies that had proprietary CG systems. And we were working off of off-the-shelf software with computer components that you could buy at Best Buy. You know, we didn't buy them at Best Buy, but you could. <laughs> and that was the beginning of it. And we've been able to kind of like climb that ladder along with the industry to the point where now we're all working from home. We have completely like, you know, these just very, very powerful workstations, accesses to our own home-built cloud render farms and all this stuff. And the amount of computing power that we have is just phenomenal. And I think that that, you know, transformation, you know, from analog to digital just tracks with my career specifically and, and, and the, and, and Zoic Studios. I mean, Zoic Studios is right there, you know, at the point, I mean, Jurassic Park 1993 being the first thing. And then there's a, there's a period of like, you know, nine, 10 years where the, the hardware was prohibitively expensive. And then there's a point where like, Zoic was formed where the, the accessibility of the hardware and the software is just and the creative tools available to anybody who had the drive to go in there and the creative to sell that could make their own way. And I think that that's um, well, the, the biggest thing that's, that's, you know, the biggest overall um, trend, you know, economic and, you know, I guess even, you know, creative or social trend that's, that's helped us. And where we were able to also piggyback on a lot of young people, a lot of people who came in early and are still working for us, who work their way up from intern artist to supervisor. We have a bunch of those at Zoic came in, you know, seeing, you know, the, the, that, that they, they too could work on it, worked on it in their home or worked on it in their school and saw that there was a potential there to come to at the time, Los Angeles, and then later Vancouver, New York, London, Australia, New Zealand, you know, all these kind of visual yeah. effects hotspots, like none of that existed at the time that I was coming in, but we were able to kind of ride that wave of talent. That's the other thing is it takes people to do this. And um, that, that access to the technology also broadly um, expanded the amount of creative talent for us to draw from. Mm-hmm. You know, first so, all over the U S and then all over the world. Yeah. I, I really agree with you, especially on the, when you mentioned schools like Nomon, I mean, it's incredible. Like DigiDepan and Nomon, they're preparing people. We feature a lot of artists from those schools and the stuff that they're kind of, you know, their graduate projects, it's basically on the same level as you will see like in a movie or in a very high level video game. So yeah, totally. I mean, people are definitely creating some incredible stuff right now. I, I want to point one thing. So you mentioned Jurassic Park like a number of times during your yeah. answer and it's a very interesting kind of like transitional film mm-hmm. because it has a lot of like CGI effects, but it also has like practical effects. Yes. And they kind of blend together nicely to create this illusion that you're actually in the in the world with dinosaurs and so on. But as kind of the technology grew and grew, we kind of saw less and less practical effects and with mm-hmm. more and more CGI effects to an extent yeah. where 
you would just go in a studio and it would be green screen everywhere and you would be wearing like a whatever a tracking suit yeah, which is also suit, yeah. weird right and um it kind of i think it influences the way that the acting is going on and you know the people interact on in the studio and so on um probably you you, you can't kind of go over it but i think you at zoic tried a very interesting approach with your virtual production and how you kind of try to approach that um, direction where you kind of don't have the green screen mm -hmm. you have like a better immersion for like the you know the actors or whoever is kind of taking part in that can you tell us a little bit about how that idea came up and uh, how it kind of developed over time yeah and i, I just wanted to what Seth, i think you're right like what you saw was like a kind of a uh gold rush mentality to this technology saying it's going to save everything it's easy to say like ah well i'll shoot it on green screen and i think you're right there was a little a bit you know especially in the uh the 2000s and the and then the knots i guess called those like because where these movies was like just like just way too much cg you know and it kind of got a little bit out of control i think that we're coming back now and you see something like with LED screens and people coming back to prosthetic and puppetry, did a lot of that on Sweet Tooth and, and some of the other shows that we've done. Midnight Mass is another one where like people have gotten a little bit weary of that CG look, you know, and uh, and um, whereas the wow factor of it at the beginning of the this, you know, for, for the normal viewer was enough to kind of carry it. We've now had enough material that every viewer especially with youtube and and with all this kind of transparency as to how it's done you know people even my kids are like cg 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 bad cg like the people have made a have made a a bit of a hobby of pointing out when they can see elements in the in the, in the visual that are not integrated um you know with the uh with the main picture you know and there's a couple ways you know that people have um dealt with that they've included more practical and now we actually have with the with the technology like the, the technology was so rudimentary it was either kind of on or off you were doing a cg thing or you weren't doing a cg thing the tracking software wasn't there to put stuff on people's face especially for broadcast and that's been a big thing for zoic studios is we've been focused on broadcast for 20 years now and now that streaming's coming in you know we're taking that you know mentality and and the and the, and the feature quality that we brought to our broadcast work and doing really well it's kind of a, a great thing you know for for us but even with streaming it's not the same as like an old school movie where you know you have years in some cases to do the work or months to do the work you have a very tight schedule and a budgetary concerns there's not infinite money so we have to, we've had to since the beginning of zoic be very very creative about how we interfuse the practical with the cg and to the point now, like I'm just gonna like where you know LED screens and the project of the Mandalorian, where there's like a lot of practical sets, and there's an LED wall that's there on set, and there's a baby Yoda that's a that's a that's a that's a that's a um you know like a puppet with servos in it and stuff like that, and then there's CG on top of it, and there's a marriage between this. I think that that is the aesthetic that now people have gotten used to this tight tight integration between CG and practical. And I think that, you know, that's, it's kind of come full circle because you're right, because that was like, you know, Jurassic Park didn't have the technology to go all CG and just do it that way. So they had to, you know, with all this, all the Stan Winston stuff and, you know, and, and with all the ILM CG stuff mixed in there. 
and then then it ramped up into these like CG extravaganzas that kind of uh, felt maybe felt a little bit sterile. I think is what you're kind of getting at that that lost yeah. the 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 feeling and then now you're back to this you know these things like you know if you watch a movie it's a kind of a out of left field example but i just you know saw french dispatch the new wes anderson movie there's a ton of visual effects in that movie it's not realistic but it has such a organic analog feel to it that really couldn't be achieved without modern visual effects so mm-hmm. the, there's a there's a and, and and you know when i was working with um the showrunners and the creative people on Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, we were referencing all of these classic, you know, kind of grindhouse horror movies like, you know, The Howling and Suspiria and, you know, oh, yeah. even more modern stuff that's in that, like, like Drag Me to Hell, like that have, you know, or, or The Witch, you know, things that are, have a real practical focus to them. And, you know, we were always using that guiding principle in CG you know, to make sure that we, that's because there's a feel there. There's a feel that something's really happened, especially in a genre like horror and midnight mass. And we've done a lot more work from Mike Flanagan. Uh, Haunting a Bly Manor was a show that we did as well, where, especially in a genre like horror, where that visceral, yeah. you know, component, it, you know, and there, there are some movies that just go way over the edge and there's too much monster and it's obviously CG and it's chasing everybody around for 20 minutes and you're like, hmm. Okay, I mean, I'm not scared. Looks cool. Yeah, for some reason, it also kind of, which is ironic, it kind of looks cheap now. And yeah, even though like it's incredibly expensive, it takes <laughs> yeah, people's like, like like months of people's lives. You know, and these these are these are very hard things to pull off. The technical and artistic things to do these large large CG sequences, mm-hmm. and it's so hard on the artists. And their and their personal lives and their and 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 they spend so much of their professional life and then they do it and everybody's like, eh. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. I <laughs> that's the benefit of working in broadcast my my whole career basically. I mean, I caught the bug very very early. You know, my first job after like I was working at a company that was just kind of in that '90s era of like just kind of pressing stuff onto CD-ROMs and putting an interface mm-hmm. around it and pushing it out there as like an interactive movie type of a type of a deal and i was actually doing graphic design for them at the time and they had one sgi workstation that they were using um alias power animator to do interface design and there was an interface design artist and he worked on it and i would go up to him and you know like ask him a bunch of questions and then the i asked when you go home can i use this computer so when you when you knock off at like I mean we were long hours like eight or nine can I do it so the, and and the only thing that I had was the printed manual and the printed manual for you know power animator is like you know, that is like a just a giant encyclopedia of like all the all the things that it did and all the functions and that was really the only way to kind of access it you know just go in. Night after night, page after page, trying stuff out. And, and, and I think that, you know, there's a, again, like, you know, back to the kind of the practical consideration, there's like, you really have to think there's a, that, that experience, you know, was a formative experience for me. How do I take these very technical functions and mimic what, it, what I learned as on a film set? Because I also worked as a PA and I've been on a bunch of film sets and, 
my, uh, you know, worked in, in, in New York and at an ad agency where I got to see, I've, I've, I've been fortunate to be on a lot of film sets, you know, throughout my, throughout my life. You know, how do you do that? So that was, that was formative for me, but then also when I uh, landed one of our earlier jobs at Zoic was as a CG super, the, the visual effects supervisor for CSI. At the time, that was, I believe, season three or four that I took over as a visual effects supervisor. They had, just because of time considerations, and it's a broadcast show that aired week after week, didn't have a lot of time to create like all the internal body stuff and zooming through, you know, rooms and following bullets around. Like there was a good CG component to that, but there wasn't enough time to do it all CG. So we were resting a lot on traditional motion control techniques. And working with some of the motion control operators who had been on Star Wars, who had been on, you know, Star Trek, the motion picture, who had, you know, been on Next Generation and all these big motion control shows, having the experience of placing a physical camera in space. Because, you know, in, in CG, a lot of it, not to get too technical, is you go, you place a camera here, you place a camera here, and you run it, and the computer puts it back. Motion control is the same thing, except there's a real camera on a robot arm and you put it here and you put it here. Um, but you have to have in that physicality in a computer, you can move it, try it again, move it, try it again, you move it, try it again. You can, you can add keyframes and do that all day and there's no physicality to it. So you can do a lot more iteration that way. But when you're using a motion control camera, it's a physical camera and you have to be wary of the physical limitations of the rig and also what's happening in space. And you have to be a really keen supervisor and like, okay, I want to be here. I want to be here. And I want to take this many frames. You kind of have to have that feeling of how cameras move through space and program into a computer. And we shot over 200 days of motion control for that show. And, you know, that integration of like, you know, I've always felt that that integration of, of a practical consideration using CG and computers as a tool to push it farther um, than you would normally um, is something special. Like there's magic there for sure. So you've used a lot of, um, in, in your recent work, you start using a lot of Unreal. Yes. And uh, you did a lot of like real-time filmmaking and all that stuff. I'm, I'm wondering like from your point of view in your career, because you went like from using those kind of ancient right now workstations to using Blender and modern tech, which is much yeah. more, you know, developed My, uh, and the, new yeah. Houdini, all that stuff. Plus the hardware today is, it's kind of crazy, right? If somebody told me that you would have like a workstation like that 10 years ago, I wouldn't believe it because it was literally impossible. Yeah. But um, coming from that, do you see the changes in the pipelines and workflows of VFX studios where like traditional stuff that you did simulation, then you rendered it and then you gave it to compositor to kind of cram it into the shot. Do you think, do you see this changing? Do you see like filmmakers yeah. in more of the Unreal and, you know, real time I, stuff? I do. Um, and, you know, I would say that, you know, we do a lot of different things in Unreal right now. And it's, and it's so new. It's like, you know, a, a, you know, just, just barely a year old out of the 19 years, you know, we've only, we've been seriously offering it as a service for about a year. And there's kind of um, several different ways that it's impacting. It's, they're all very interesting in their own right. 
you know, the first one is interactive visualization. You know, so that includes previs, but technically, uh, you know, historically, let's say people have looked at previs as like, it's like cool storyboards, you know, like, like better moving storyboards. And when you interject Unreal Engine into it, this gets back to that inter, in, intersection between the practical and the CG. It's different in Unreal because everything is simulated. I'll get to that in a minute. And also everything is to real world scale. Mm-hmm. So simu- by, by everything simulated, I mean the lights and the and their cast, how they cast light is simulated. The camera, it's f-stop, it's you know, it's it's uh, it's depth of field, it's expo- all the exposure is all simulated in 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 real time. So when you make changes, you can get that visual artistic feedback, which is super interesting because it's so close to what happens on a real film set. You know, when you move a light in the, in the traditional, what I'll, call, what I'll call the linear pipeline, which is traditional visual effects pipeline, I call it linear because you start at a task, say modeling, and that task trickles down to rigging, trickles down to animation, trickles down to lighting, trickles down to compositing. And if you want to make a change to lighting, you have to send it back to the lighting department or if you send it back to animation, the further you send it back down, it has to step back down through that pipeline to get back to the compositing. So it's it that I'll concentrate on the feel of what it feels like, you know, because after doing this for so long, I've spent almost 30 years, you know, in that thing of, okay, let's step down this pipeline, let's create an image so we can show it to a client, have that client verbally look at it and say with words, what's working and what needs further refinement. My job being coming back, translating that, figuring out what part of the pipeline needs to be adjusted to adjust that note, stepping it back down the pipeline and showing it again. So that's been the way that we've done it for years. And that, 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 you know, and we've tried to interact some interactivity. So like, here's some camera animation. It's not rendered. It's just a gray box. It's not a city, but is this the camera you like? Client says, I, I guess it's just a great, bot. I don't know. I don't know how I'm going to feel about it. You know, it, it's been a frustration for visual effects. I like, can't, the clients just like they want, visual effects want people to, in those steps, approve each creative component that's con- in- included in that task area and then never go back. In reality, that never happens. It's frustrating. Creative people have learned to live with it, but nobody likes it. Let's just be honest. Like, I don't like it. I, I don't think it's like, it's like a super great creative process. Now, Unreal, like once you get your level built and everything mm-hmm. is there, I've done so many more presentations and immediately, the, even from the first time I did it, the directors are like, move this light. DP says, change this exposure. You know, another creative person says like, can I move the animation performance in the mocap to a different spot? Oh, 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 there. And what that, is like is like first of all they access it immediately no training involved because it's simulated it's a simulated shoot essentially and they know the language of a, of a, of a of a shoot right mm-hmm. so they know you know like they they I, and, and and I've been on so many films that I know when they ask me and I actually run engine sessions like this all the time I think it's important for the supervisors to learn how to run these engine sessions and be able to interact directly with their clients 
And, you know, it's just really interesting because say that there's um, an animation tweak and you're working with a piece of motion capture and you're doing it in Unreal or a light change or something and you, you're you on a shot and then you're, you're moving it and then the, the director says, you know what, the timing of that's not quite right. Let me see it like happen five frames uh, for, okay, here you go, five frames. Okay, let me see it 10 frames. Oh, that's too much, how about seven? Okay, good. Done, approved, I love it, okay? In the Unreal workflow, when you're doing interactive visualization like this, a creative rarely ever goes back and says, I didn't get what I wanted. But when you think about that interaction of sliding the, 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 the a creative, you know, feeling a creative component of a shot by looking at it, like the linear pipeline is not optimized for that because that would mean as you go there and they look at it and they're like, I don't know, the timing doesn't seem right in an animation. Could you try moving it back five frames? Okay, go there, note to animator, move it five frames, step it back down through lighting compositing. Two days later, show it again. Five isn't right, how about 10? So like it literally compresses what is days and sometimes weeks of inner, of um, iterative notes. And that's really what the key is with visual effects. That's what it comes down to every single time is how iterative can you be? How many bites at the apple can you have? Because it's not like you know, people think like, oh, everybody's a genius. And like that's why they do takes when they shoot. Like that's why they shoot the same. If it was really like that as a filmmaking process, they just go through the script and they go through it from the first scene to the next scene and just do it once. And that's it like a play. That's not the way it works. They do it a bunch of different times and do it again for a different camera angle. And you get that feeling when you're working in Unreal and we're able to leverage that through uh, what we're calling previs, interactive visualization because it covers technically previs, techviz, which is a pro, pro, uh, what's part of the process where you use the previs since it's simulated and since it's real time, you can use it to communicate to stunt uh, uh, stunts. You can use it to communicate to uh, uh, lighting all these different, you know, um, special effects, you can use it to really measure out like where you are on the stage and what you need to do for planning purposes. Um, and then there's look development. So we use it to, you know, place lights and to do color analysis and, you know, work with DPs. And then after the whole thing is shot, this interactive visualization, you know, when we go to the cutting process, since it's real time and it's kind of like, the other thing is kind of more of a budgetary thing linear pipelines tend to or need to be bid on a shot-by-shot -shot basis. So that linear pipeline isn't a project-wide thing. It's a shot-by-shot -shot thing. So every shot is locked in place and has those steps to it. And so every shot on the budget has its own line item to figure out how complicated that, <laughs> that process is going to be and price everything accordingly. So when you're in the editorial process and you're changing shots around, oops, sorry, in the, um, in the, in the linear pipeline, it has a lot of budgetary impact. When you're doing this type of intera interactive visualization in the real time, everything's just kind of happening in the level. You can shoot it from wherever. So adding and subtracting and moving shots around, we're heavily leveraging some, a part of the Unreal Engine called the sequencer, which is basically like an avid an editorial suite inside of it that lets us cut to different cameras that are in our level. So we can work with editorial to extend, change, move shots. And then we push that material. And in a lot of cases, integrate it with shot material, green screen material, replace our CG previs characters with shot characters. And we're able to push like a very, very high level 
of temps into the cut so that everybody from the studio to the editor to the director can see how these visual effects are flowing from shot to shot. Because that's another thing that's changed dramatically. When we first started in CGI, especially in broadcast, what you'd see is you'd see people happening, fight, 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 stop, lock off the camera, do a visual effect, visual effect over, fight, 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 stop. Like, And there was not enough money to do a ton of shot volume. And there definitely was too, too many technical constraints to integrate in, you know, and that's something that we really were passionate about from the very beginning. When you see Firefly and you see Battlestar Galactica, I think some of the success of the, of the, of the visuals there is that it looks like it's being shot by the same camera that the, that the, that the show was being shot by. And that was a radical concept for broadcast visual effects at the time, but that's now you need to do that. So being able to see everything, not as an individual visual effect shot, but in sequence and being able to interact in real time with that sequence is just like the biggest leap in, in the process of visual effects that I've seen since I've been doing this, like hands down, like I can't even like being the person who like the way that I do it, I get people on Zoom, I have Unreal Engine broadcast over Zoom, and I'm making these changes while we're talking. I've never been able to do that before. And once people do it, they never do it another way again. It's just too powerful. Like, <laughs> So I don't want to be like a like an Unreal boot. But, but to, to that point, and at that point, once you're done with that interactive visualization, there's a couple different things that, you know, we're doing. We're either exporting all that information and this is all you know kind of working with epic and developing proprietary tools for visual effects to push all that information into the traditional linear pipeline from that point so now you're getting a jump because instead of stepping backwards and forwards and trying to address notes into this linear system that isn't really devised to 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 have notes injected into it at all you're getting all the notes, you know, in the in in the real time. Then you're pushing it from there, and the visual quality of this it has lighting, has reflections, motion capture, facial animation. I mean, you know, a lot of times we'll do um, uh, fabric simulation, cloth simulation, all this kind of stuff. Dynamics, mm-hmm. you know, all that stuff is in there. So then the linear part of the pipeline becomes an execution. It, you know what I mean, and it steps through the pipeline pretty much once with small tweaks, you know, towards the end of the pipeline with, you know, up resing and, and compositing tweaks yeah. and stuff like that. So it, it has a yeah. knock on effect into the, into the, into the linear pipeline. We're also, you know, um, in some cases, it's getting more and more, and we're doing a lot of work here, either pushing that material into a final pixel which we're calling that's that's a kind of term we're using for directly rendering from Unreal Engine directly to the compositors, and that's something that's really happening and evolving right now. I would say we've gone from zero percent of our shows um, integrating Final Pixel in some form to probably about thirty percent of our shows integrating, you know, um, Final Pixel into their pipeline in some form or another. We're still predominantly linear for final images, but on you know, real time is and, and final pixel real time is is quickly, excuse me, and then as as Unreal 5 comes into the picture, we'll probably see more and more and more. The other, you know, um thing that we're doing with Unreal that is completely new, completely new, because it's a different deliverable. 
our deliverable, our product, what we what our contract says we're supposed to deliver to the studios up until this point has been frames of rendered material. That's essentially it. And we, we have to, we have other things. We have to archive our assets and give those blah, 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 blah. Essentially what we're doing is we're giving 24 frames a second pictures. That's our product. We have a new product now. It's an unreal engine level that's been created for broadcast applications. So the oh, deliverables are level. So that level, so where, where this whole thing works out with video walls, a company like Zoic is really positioned to do all the creative, make all the assets, put everything together, do all the lightings, in some cases, bring our Unreal Specialist to the set to make it work, and then plug into an existing video wall. So the, the productions like Disney, Universal, they're the ones building the walls. We're the ones making the content that's being put on the walls. And that deliverable isn't frames. It's an Unreal Engine level. And that's also for, for broadcast um, applications that aren't just video walls. There's a bunch of things going on right now. The, the video walls are very expensive, very hard to get. Some productions are actually going in a similar route, but they're doing real-time compositing. So shooting on green screen and replacing the green screen real time with unreal tracked cameras. Mm -hmm. And some mm -hmm. people are doing a lot of, and this is particularly in sports. We're doing a lot of work in unreal for Fox sports right now. That's AR VR. So basically giving them unreal engines that they can uh, engine levels that they can hook into their camera systems to track in real time for graphics and backgrounds for sports broadcasts. So those are, <laughs> so there's a lot going on in that space right now. And I think that that will be, for visual effects companies, a new deliverable. And I think companies that are starting now may even be making a choice where that is their primary or only deliverable is Unreal Engine scenes, not even delivering frames like, like we have been for the last, you know, 30 years. So thank you for the, the, this, an this answer. I have like a follow up on it. And I think that's yeah. a nice way to kind of finish up our conversation today. It's like when you talk about like the linear pipeline uh, and like any VFX artist you will talk to will say that it's uh, it's horrible, basically. It's uh, co completely um, like not disruptive. You have to redo everything from the start if you make some creative decision, you know, mm. a creative change. and. Uh, that's where the crunch comes from. That's where like the people are staying like till 9 p.m. and 12 p.m. and pulling all-nighters to kind of finish the frames and so on. Do you feel like this real-time flow is making it easier for the VFX artists? Is it making it easier for them to have basically more time or... You know, you it's know... funny. I've been through a lot of, you know, um, transitions and I'll pick up some ones that that feels like it's like like oh like we're making these PCs and like for a while there like RAM was like incredibly expensive like we were like locking the back of our computers because the the RAM was like the biggest tech cost we have and now like RAM it's like even with the chip problems we're having today like I bought RAM for my son's computer you know and it's like fifty bucks you know for like sixteen gigs of RAM like this is insane like if you think about it from where we started to where we are now, like it's incredibly inexpensive, exponentially less expensive for the computer power. Now, 
we use it all, <laughs> you know, like, like the render times haven't gotten shorter mm-hmm. because we've been using more RAM. Like, 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 the, the, like, like anybody's vivid effects will tell you that's been kind of the same. Like, you know, there's been some improvements. We just do more. So it doesn't make it easier. It does make it different. And here's a difference too, because that I've noticed in talking about this full circle thing with the practicality of it, there's another full circle from the artist perspective, which I think is really interesting. And people, this is a very divisive topic and people have a lot of opinions about this, but I'll just tell you my opinion on it, which is one of the things that started out when I started out is there's these expensive machines. Nobody knew how to use them. You know, um, there was no Nomen. We were just learning how to use it. So like there was no like tracking department, modeling department, texturing department. That was just you like do the shot, like was your task. Right. So you had to figure it out and you kind of had to have an overall knowledge. And I, and for my personality and people know me, like, I really dug that. Like, I thought that that was great. And that's why I've kind of come in as like an overall process type supervisor from that point. Cause I like to be involved in the whole thing. Some people have come up later and they've been in the linear pipeline and they've been specialized. So they're maybe they've just been a matte painter, but maybe they've always wanted to do lighting or maybe they've always wanted to do camera work. Or maybe they always wanted to do animation. Well, um, Unreal Engine, the specialization tends to be way more broad. Like the people that we're working with tended like, oh, this person's very technical, so they're great at blueprints. Like this person's great at materials, you know, so they're 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 gonna build our materials. But that person also probably does the layout for the scene and places everything and dials in the materials based on the lighting. So a uh, map painter might come in and we're having a lot of success with the Unreal Fellowship Program, training our existing artists coming into Unreal. And what we're finding is those people have a much wider task responsibility. Their tasks are touching so many different parts of the visual effects filmmaking process that, um, you know, it's, it, it, and so easier isn't really the way that I look at it, is it's like, it's broadening. It's broadening and expanding what what people can do and and looking at, you know, a visual effects artist as a person who has an overall contribution rather than just someone who's a task checkbox. Uh-huh. And I think for 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 that just feeds into what we're talking about about what Zoxu is all about and our and our and our focus on creative and our focus on solving creative issues and and, and, and creating like all these different worlds and tones and stuff like when we can give that artist who's enthusiastic about that, that power to influence a lot of the process, you can really get a lot more creative throw from an individual artist. Now, you know, some of the artists have come back to me and said, wait a minute, that's great for you as an owner of a visual effects company. Now you don't have to pay a modeler and a, and a lighter. You can just make somebody do two jobs. That's not fair. So <laughs> I can understand that. Um, like, it is weird. People don't like the linear pipeline. There's problems with it. It's, you know, here to stay for the, for the, for at least the, the next little bit and people are comfortable in their role. And then this, you use a, you know, kind of a key term is disruptive. It's disruptive to the roles that people have and it's expanding what an individual artist can do. And I'm finding that right now where we're at with existing visual effects, the new artists are coming in. The new artists want to go into the unreal side. Like that, that's just something nice. Like they all have, they're all starting to come out with Unreal training. They all want to be involved in real time. 
they do still go into the into the linear pipeline, but they 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 understand that people who are have the experience and then are bringing a lot to Unreal, like those are those are key people as well, because they're bringing in their eye, they're bringing their filmmaking experience. They're bringing their 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 years of experience, you know, addressing notes and being part of the creative process, and they're expanding their areas of responsibility. And I think that that's a cool thing. I think that it's something that that that's that keeps people from getting burnt out, that keeps people engaged. And yes, it's easier, but people are filling that 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 um, space that's being created by having more powerful tools in real time by expanding their creative contact with the material. Makes total sense. Thank you. I think, mm -hmm. I think this is a very nice inspirational um, kind of message for, for our audience. But basically, if you like being in a creative profession and you like kind of get into the VFX and film and all that stuff, you kind of want that. You want to have be more involved in different aspects of it and unreal kind of gives you this opportunity not just to stay in whatever little piece of pipeline that you're doing but to get more involved and to, to finally make a better product like at the end mm -hmm. and one of the other things that's that's just to put, to, to put a cap on that there is we talked a lot about the artists and everything but the involvement from epic and their mm -hmm. desire to push this project forward and let the facilities do their creative thing and support them has been insanely um, beneficial to the process. The fact that Epic is so much behind and they give us so much support and so much direct contact with their developers is also new. Like I've been like everybody's I've used all the software at Alias Maya and stuff like that. And they're, and they've been, they've been great, you know, and I, and I appreciate everything that they got me where I've gotten, but it's a completely different relationship that we have with, with Epic and they've been a fantastic partner. I can't say enough about that. It's just, that's different, it's just so different to be able to go directly to the developers and say, hey, I wanna do this, I did it this way. Can you tell me what I can tweak to make it work better with the software that you've been spending years developing? It's, it's, yeah. it's really cool. Yeah, Epic is like that. They're kind of like hands-on on everyone. Mm -hmm. they, they kind of have the same practice for any, any kind of client, even like if you're super small. Even oh, if yeah. it's like an individual game developer, they're still kind of, they have a lot of people, they help out. So yeah, yeah. very good that way. Mm -hmm. All right, Andrew, I think we're kind of out of time. I thank you for your time and uh, for no all problem. the this knowledge was fun. that you shared with us. Thank you so much. And if you ever want to do like another podcast and talk a little bit more about the developments in Zoic, then me would love to feature you one more time. Thank okay, you. yeah, absolutely. All right, thank you so, so much. much. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. See you. Bye-bye. Thanks for enjoying another episode of the 80 Level Roundtable podcast. Check out upcoming episodes on the 80 Level website at 80.lv. Join our career site at 80.lv slash RFP. And share our podcast with friends and on your social networks.